0: To lift up the name of Jesus, to worship. As we think in terms of this particular song, the lyrics are really basically uh, a background to our church covenant that you recited at the beginning of, of the year, the first service. We always do that, and I hope that it was made clear at that point that this is not just a membership covenant. It's really an opportunity for ever, everyone who's uh, on their journey somewhere between uh, being visitors, being uh, spectators, being uh, involved in the worship services, and then eventually perhaps becoming members of the local body, but to be able to gather, to express, this is who we want to be as a congregation. This is where we hope to, to go together uh, as people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who want to win others to Christ, and then together to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So this morning, uh, I want to speak about uh, a Great Commission Healthy Church. This is what we desire to be. Great Commission Healthy means in, the, in terms of who we are, what it is we believe, what it is we practice, and how it is uh, together we want to serve God to the best of our ability with the gifts and uh, with the... Blessings that he has bestowed upon us. As we do that, I just want to read uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts. First first 11 verses of the book of Acts. Thank you. The first 11 chapters would take most of the service. All right. Thank you. Uh, And this is where uh, the author here is uh, taking us From the point of the resurrection has taken place, uh, Jesus is uh, about to ascend back to the Heavenly Father, Acts chapter uh, 1 and verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating um, with them, he gave them this command, For the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So then they met together. They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness you have seen him go into heaven. That's an interesting story, and uh, I recognize that uh, we're living in a day and age where many, many people are being attracted to all kinds of end-time prophecies because there's an urgent sense that it can't last much longer. The world can't get much worse than it is now. And yet, uh, when we think in terms of what Jesus said to his disciples, what their focus should be, it wasn't about, about about the end time, it was about what they were to do while here on earth. And so today is a very special day for our church because we celebrate a number of elements that are all part of that Great Commission. The Great Commission was expressed uh, in the New Testament in, in several different ways. Uh, each of the Gospel writers has something to say about it, and here uh, is... Uh, Uh, a a slightly different twist to the same Great Commission, uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples. So today, as we celebrate Great Commission Sunday, we have a baptismal service. In the second service, there will be two individuals uh, baptized who are both adults, but they've come uh, to the place in their journey of faith, where they are prepared to be uh, obedient to a step of obedience and faith, in in following Jesus as a public testimony of their faith in Him. We will have a commissioning prayer for a team. uh, We've been mentioning this uh, several times over who are going to Cambodia, and uh, I I will have the elders come up here, those who are available in this service, and the same thing will happen in the second service, to pray for them and to uh, send them off with our blessing. And, of course, that's not the end of our prayer. Our hope is that we will all carry them in our hearts, in our prayers during that entire duration of that mission trip. We also will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together, as you can see. And that is part of uh, uh, what in the Great Commission Jesus says, and teach them to do everything that I have commanded you. We believe in two ordinances. One is baptism, the other one is the Lord's Supper. Both of these are in obedience to what Jesus commanded us to do. And so as a church, we practice this. And then we will have the privilege this morning of receiving seven new members into our church, two of them by baptism, the other five by transfer or simply because they've been believers for some time and have now decided to join us. So as we do that, all of that will happen in the second service. I'm telling you about it now so that if you desire, you could be part of that experience as well. As I said, many uh, believers nowadays are drawn to those prophetic statements and conferences and books and seminars. In fact, uh, I have encountered some people, it doesn't matter where we start, we always end up in end-time prophecy because that's all their focus. And sometimes, unfortunately, with that comes a sense that if Jesus is really coming soon, then there's no point sending missionaries overseas. There's not time anymore anymore. He'll be here soon, and, and, and he'll take care of it all. But this is not what Jesus told his disciples. In fact, when we read from Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, what Jesus said to his disciples was that their focus should not be on the end time, but he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These, in fact, were his last words to his disciples, and last words are important. Now, many of you already know that I came to this country as a teenager basically because back In 1953, my father died of a massive heart attack, uh, unannounced. There was no indication, no illness, no prior signals that this was going to happen. And uh, that just ended my life in Germany as I knew it then as a student in high school. But I will never forget the last words he spoke to me. Because the night he came home from work, had worked overtime hours, I was the only one at home at the time, and uh, he was not feeling well, he didn't look so good either. That was December 1, 1953. And he caught me once again reading one of my favorite novels. I, back then as a teenager, I was into cowboys and Indian stories and the Wild West, and uh, we had an author in Germany, Karl May, who had I think 68 volumes of books, and they were thick books. I read every one of those, and some of them more than once. And so I I was enamored with all of this. And when my father came home and he saw me reading that again, these were the words. Why do you waste your time on stuff like that? Why don't you study so something comes of you? Those words haunted me for the rest of my life because those were the last words he spoke to me. After that, he went to bed. I heard him moan as he went to bed, and for all I know, that was his last breath, and he died. Well, here we have the last words of Jesus before he ascended back to the Father in heaven. And, and I believe that those last words are not only for the disciples at the time who met him in that hillside in Galilee and who witnessed his ascension into heaven until that cloud received them out of their sight and he was no longer to be seen. And what he said to them, don't worry about the end times. Don't worry about how it will unfold. That is in God's prerogative. God has given that to his own authority. And and I'm mindful of the fact that back in the uh, Old Testament period, there were many, many prophecies about what was to happen when the Messiah would come. And the Israelites, especially the religious intelligentsia of of the Israelites, had figured it all out. They had their systems. They had factions that believed that this is how it's going to play out, and this is how it's going to work out, and this is where the resurrection will take place. And then they had others who didn't believe the resurrection. No, it's going to be this way. And so they would argue and spar with each other. And we've done that throughout the history of the Christian church in very similar ways. So that when Jesus actually did appear, the Messiah, the promised one, and all the signs pointed to the fact that he was it, many of those people who were students of the scriptures didn't recognize it because it didn't fit their theology. It didn't fit their mindset. It didn't fit their ideas as to how God should play it out. And so Jesus says, no, no, you, you need to be careful that you don't put your emphasis on the wrong issue. This is what's going to happen. You will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I believe these words have application for the church today, for each one of us, in terms of missional living in terms of how we spend our time and energy and resources to serve God. And uh, he said, your primary concern should be this command, that you will be witnesses to me throughout the entire world. So what are the implications? Very quickly, the dynamic implications of that, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. uh, This is not about a second blessing. Some denominational groups look at this and they say, well, unless you are a believer and unless you are baptized in water and unless you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing, you're not really a believer. Remember when I first started in church planting ministry up in Red Lake, Ontario, I had a great relationship with a Pentecostal pastor. We were the two evangelical pastors in town. And he and I solved all the world's problems on a boat fishing in the Red Lake. And we had great discussions. And he and I were kindred spirits in much of what we, we believed. But in his church, he had some people who, who were even more spiritual than the pastor, who would come and they would listen to me preach and they said, oh, Pastor Sieg is good, but, but he doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. And they were always waiting for me to uh, talk about a second blessing, to, to talk about the gift of the Spirit and, and, and what have you. And so they judged me on a basis that I did not fit into their theological construct as a pastor, as a believer. So they, they granted me I was probably a believer, but just a so-so believer. No, this is not about a second blessing. It's about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's about the empowering of the Holy Spirit of believers in whose life the Holy Spirit is resident from the very moment of the new birth. The moment you give your heart to Jesus, the moment you say yes to the gift of salvation through Christ, through his death on the cross, you become a believer and God Father, God Son, and God Holy Spirit all take up residence in your life. That's what Scripture teaches us. And so it's, it's, a, it's about the fact that the Holy Spirit who indwells every, every believer at the moment of the new birth actually also begins to infill and empower as long as we are responsive and willing to go God's way. So, let me ask the question. When Jesus said these words, was that merely a foreshadowing of what would happen in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? I'm sure it was that. But it was more than that. It was the promise that once you are willing to move out into the world as my witnesses, you don't have to do it in your own strength. You can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, who fills you, who empowers you, who who draws the very best out of you, who multiplies the gifts and the capacity that you will have as a believer serving God. And if that is the case, we need to ask ourselves the question as believers today. Are we living in that reality? Do we, do you, do I sense the presence of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, and recognize that we, when we talk to the Holy God, when we pray to Him, we are not, we're not communicating with another hu- human being. We're talking with God Almighty, but He, through His Holy Spirit, allows us not only to receive all the blessings we need, but to be p- channels of that blessing towards others. So the question is, uh, you know, what needs to change in our lives if we're not conscious of that. I think a while ago I I mentioned in one of my messages that if you're not as close to God today as you were at some point in your history when you can look back and say, that was a time of revival. That's when I was really close to God. There's absolutely no question which of you has moved. God is always there. But sometimes we walk out of hearing range of what he is saying to us. My child, I love you. I care for you. I want to empower you. Here's an opportunity. And and I find that many times when the Lord brings someone's name to mind, when the Lord draws my attention to the need of someone, that's a good time immediately to say, yes, Lord, I need to pray for that person. And right then and there, so Lord, I don't know what their need is today. I don't know what they're going through. But Lord, you know. And so I just want to stand in support of my brother or my sister or this person down the block who is going through a hard time at this point. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak truth into their life, to somehow become involved in helping to mitigate the circumstances that your Holy Spirit is working on. In fact, uh, if we're not as close to... uh, where we were at one point in our relationship to God, one of the things that I learned, and that goes back to about 1973 or so when we had that, uh, uh, some of you may remember, we had uh, the I Found It campaign. It was a Billy, Billy Bright uh, uh, emphasis, Campus Crusade, and, and I was actively involved in, in Edmonton at that point with that ministry because I was serving uh, at Northgate Baptist Church. And, and what I learned was a principle that is called the principle of spiritual breathing. And spiritual breathing has to do, just like uh, in, in your body, in order to, for you to have oxygen in your lung, you first need to expel, breathe out, the bad stuff that's inside, the used up oxygen. So you exhale, and then you inhale fresh oxygen, which allows your heart to function, which... Ha- And and some some people who've gone through heart condition and issues know that the heart functioning and your ability to breathe are very closely related. Uh, You get very winded if your heart isn't pumping enough oxygen. So exhaling and inhaling. Spiritually speaking, what that means is I confess my sin. He is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And I inhale, I appropriate the power that is available in the Holy Spirit for me to function as a believer. Exhale, inhale. Exhale, inhale. And then I discovered, as I began to put this principle into operation in my life, I, I discovered that two, two verses in First John, and that's one of my favorite passages, I've been preaching from it, in 1 John 1, 1.9, we read what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, plural, specific sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means that takes in the stuff I don't even know, the stuff I don't even remember, the sins that I'm not even aware of. But if I am living in confession, the Spirit of God the Lord Jesus, His cleansing blood, takes care of the problem to the point where I now have fresh spiritual oxygen in my blood, in my body, in my system. And then I discovered, just two verses earlier, another verse that became extremely important to me because, you know, the idea of exhaling, inhaling seems like an ongoing cycle all through the rest of your life. And in some ways, it, it may be that. But in 1 John 1.7, it tells us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing. That's the literal, literal translation. Keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. What that means is, if I'm willing to live by the scriptures, if I'm willing to live a life of prayer and relationship with God, then the Holy Spirit will take care for me to be walking in the light as He is in the light, and I don't even have to sin in the first place. The Holy Spirit will signal to you the moment you want to do something wrong, hey, Sig, that's not where you need to go. And if I'm responsive to that, I'm spared the embarrassment of having having to come back to God and say, Lord, it's me again, same problem, same station. And and you know, I, I I got tired of doing that at a period in my life. And to discover that I could prevent that, not that I'm sinlessly perfect, but I don't have to sin if I'm walking consciously in relationship with Jesus moment by moment, day by day. So the dynamic implication here is. It's all in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not what I can do. It's not what we are capable of producing. It's what He is willing to do us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that should have happened and and can happen and, and usually in most cases does happen at the moment of new birth. There may be some second and third and fourth experiences along the way where we have to recommit because we messed up. Just like you know, a disobedient son uh, comes and he says, "Dad, please forgive me. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that." And so we have a we hug each other and we say, "Yeah, wonderful. I I forgive you." And then he goes out and does the same dumb thing again. And then he has to come back, Dad. I know I said I'm done with that, but you know what? Yeah, it's hard. And we understand that because in our human relationships we whether that's in a marital situation, in a family situation, whether that is at at, at the place of employment, we often have have to make things right because we are human and we fail. And so the whole idea here is uh, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. There's also some geographic implications because he says, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's four areas of geography involved here. Jerusalem, the home base, family, friends, which is often the most difficult place to witness because those people know us the best. And so they they can say, yeah, yeah, I I know you're one of those Jesus freaks, but you know what, your life isn't perfect. And we know that. So Jerusalem can be a hard place to witness. Judea is the surrounding area, the province, the region. Uh, that's where much of the church planting took place in the early Christian church. Samaria is another kettle of fish altogether, because here we are talking about those who are often despised, people who are other ethnics, people who have different cultures, who have different attitudes, who have a different frame of reference. And it takes a little time for us to understand each other and to recognize we're coming from different places. Part of that is our traditions, it's the upbringing, it's It's how we've always done things, and that is being challenged, especially in Canada right now. We're we're a multicultural nation. We have people from everywhere, and most people who have come here have contributed positive things to our country. Unfortunately, some come out of difficult situations where they carry over all of the old hatred, all the dysfunction that was there in the former land. And, and, and especially sometimes young people who can't find their way in. It. And that's where, unfortunately, and we're fully aware of that through the news, that's where some of the drug issues uh, emanate, that's where some of those uh, gang violence issues emanate, and so on. That's not the nation they came from. That's the people who've been impacted by negative things in their lives and who live in disobedience to the overall plan of God. And then the last one is to the, to the world at large, uh, and, and I, I put in my nose, ah, there's romance, because it always seems like it's more fun to go way away, across the ocean, uh, to, to serve someone. Uh, it's much tougher to do it consistently at home. It's a challenge. It's, it seems more exotic, and, and of course, we need to be doing all, all four at home uh, in the broader region and othermost parts of the earth. Missions isn't so much about uh, crossing the ocean. Missions is about obedience to the command of Jesus. And so there are some demographic implications here. When Jesus, in in, uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, gave the Great Commission, and that's the primary passage that most people quote when they talk about Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Again, the promise, we don't have to do it in our own strength, but baptizing people, uh, celebrating communion together. Uh, witnessing to people, being a friend to the needy around us, allowing our hearts to be broken for a broken world that Jesus came to die for. That's all part of that. There's a whole sermon, in fact, a whole series of messages. But we need to just quickly define, where's the real action here? Uh, when he says, uh, go, uh, therefore, make disciples of all nations, uh, is, it, is the action in In the verb going or baptizing or teaching, they're all part of it. No, that's not where the action, that's not the main verb. These are all participial phrases which modify and which clarify how we're supposed to make disciples. The main verb is make disciples, and in uh, the Greek, uh, that is a single verb. It would be like if you use disciple as a verb and simply a command. Disciple. Go make disciples. It's not the going, it's the making disciples that's the issue here. It's not nearly a a nice suggestion. Uh, It is actually a command, and you already knew that. And it is further uh, directed and qualified that we are to make disciples of all nations. Literally, the the Greek term here, pantata ta ethne actually meant of all people groups, not just nations. That's all people groups, even in our society. And then we see in Mark, uh, another spin on all of that is the fact the eternal consequences of being obedient or disobedient to the Great Commission. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all nations, all creation, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 16. Now again, that's Mark's rendition of the Great Commission and his last command. And he's talking about baptism as the outward sign and what will take place later on this morning. Uh, that's an outward sign of what's already happened in the heart of these two individuals who are being baptized and who are being obedient to their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism itself does not save people. It is the finished work of Jesus that saves people. But when we place our our faith in him, and when we are obedient to follow in the steps of baptism, then we are saying openly and publicly, count me in. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And uh, biblical baptism always involved the complete immersion of the candidate in water. Uh, Usually it happened out at the river, River Jordan, or other places, or in a lake, uh, and down through the centuries that was the primary mode. But then churches became convenient oriented. And they started, well, maybe if we just do it inside and just pour a little water over the head. Or maybe if we bring the ch- child to the church and, and sprinkle some water, that's, that's good enough. It's not the amount of water that's the issue. It's the symbolism of dying to self and being raised to newness of life. And the focus here is on the eternal consequences because the choices and the decisions we make or fail to make in this life, actually make a difference. The the disciples clearly understood that because we read in verse 20, then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word with the signs that accompanied it. So the point is they understood what he was saying, they obeyed and went preaching, and they were surprised by the extreme harvest of people following in the steps of uh, faith and of obedience and of baptism and joining the local congregations. Let me assure you that the, the Holy Spirit, that God still affirms his word when we are obedient to it as long as we are willing to live a missional life. Now part of that is sending out people from the local congregation into other areas to help uh, fulfill and ex- explain uh, what the gospel is all about. And we're going to that po- point right now. I'm going to ask the team uh, that is going, and that is Alana Faser, Lauren Ford,